You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Hello, I'm Charles Cooper, and welcome back. I'm assuming, of course, that you've been studying with us as we've been looking at a topic I'm calling eschatological geography, the world map at the beginning of Daniel's final week. If you believe that the final week of Daniel, that final seven-year period, is in fact yet future, then you also have to believe that there are certain events and certain realities that have to be in place in order for you to move into that final period as outlined in the Bible. I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that there really is no reason why Christians should be duped into believing or thinking that the return of Jesus Christ has been imminent prior to modern history. I just don't believe it because if scripture is fulfilled literally, and I believe it is, then national Israel is going to play a major role in the eschatological end. Antichrist can't make a covenant or confirm a covenant or shore up a covenant unless Israel is in the land. And prior to 1947, Israel was not in the land. It did not have a geographical footprint on a world map. There was their ancient reality But in the modern era, there was no nation of Israel. There was no prime minister or king. There was no national government. With whom then could Antichrist make a covenant, confirm or shore up a covenant if there are no people groups there with political capacity to enter into a covenantal relationship? Thus, no one should have been duped into believing that Jesus Christ was going to imminently return to this earth given the fact that there was no national Israel. Similarly, I don't believe that the final week of Daniel's prophecy can begin if there's no geographical footprint on the world map for Assyria, as we've talked about in previous sessions. The Assyrian people exist. They're all over the world, and there are Uh, several tens of thousands of those who are Assyrians in their original homeland geographically, though it is not listed as the Assyrians. Part of that land is in Iraq. A little bit of it is in Jordan. Some of it is in uh, Turkey. But I believe that there's going to be a return of the Assyrian people to their traditional geographic location under the name the Assyrians, and I personally believe that has to happen before the final week actually begins. Also, 
we see we talked about Edom, uh, Moab, and Ammon, the three countries that now go under the name of Jordan. The peoples are there, but they don't have their homeland under their name. And I believe that those particular periods or those particular peoples must have geographical identity as the final week will be initiated. Now, today, I want to talk about uh, the role of the Egyptians. Now, without national Israel, there could have been no object of Antichrist scorn. And just as national Israel needed to be back in their land, as well as the Assyrians, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, there is a very special um, need for the Egyptians to be in position as well. Now, of course, we do have the land of Egypt. It is on the map. The Egyptian people are well known to world entities. What is their role going to be in the final week of Daniel? Isaiah chapter 19, verses 23 to 24, which has been and continues to be somewhat our proof text, uh, tells us that the Egyptians are going to play a significant role in the kingdom of Christ, of God, that will be on this earth after Daniel's final week is over. Now, the question is, what role will they play during that seven-year period, and must they be in a position to fulfill it in order for that week to finally begin? Isaiah tells us that the Egyptians are a special people, that they are my people. Now, uh, you, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the uh, Israelites were specifically identified typically as my people. The Egyptians will play a vital role uh, during Daniel's final week of prophecy as detailed in Daniel chapter 11. They will both be the object of Antichrist scorn, but they will also, I believe, join with him in his uh, attempt to overrule uh, the peoples of the Middle East, including, of course, Israel. Blessed are blessed be Egypt, he says, my people. Now, the Egyptians, of course, have had a very long and interesting history as recorded in the Word of God. Genesis chapter 10, verse 6 reminds us that Egypt was a son of Ham, who, of course, was a son of uh, Noah, and Noah's three boys, and one of them, Ham, uh, of whom the Egyptians uh, are descended from. We also know that Abraham had a son by Hagar, an Egyptian female servant of Sarah. In fact, Genesis chapter 16, verses 10 and 11 tells us, the angel of the Lord said to her, that is to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring, notice singular, your son, so that they, the offspring of the the children or descendants of the offspring, they cannot be numbered for multitudes. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ish 
Ishmael. So Ishmael, a son of Abraham, is promised by God to grow into multitudes of peoples and uh, nation, a nation. Uh, and I take it that he is, of course, Egyptian on his mama's side. So the word of God is accurate, fulfilling beautifully. Therefore, I expect that that prophecy will have fruition. Now, Egypt was a safe haven for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on more than one occasion. In Egypt, the people of God went from less than 100 to several million at the Exodus. So Egypt has played a significant role in Israel's history, up to and including enslaving them, uh, seeing them going from less than 100 to several million. It was also the place where Abraham was saved during a famine. Isaac, likewise, was saved by the Egyptians. Jacob was saved by the Egyptians. So I believe that the Egyptians uh, earned a unique and special role in the outcome of God's intent for his people Israel. In fact, the greatest story of deliverance of a people occurred in Egypt or in connection with the Egyptians. We call it the Exodus. The New Testament even opens with another story of Egypt's role in the deliverance and safekeeping of the Son of God himself. In fact, Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, said, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a very fascinating passage. Uh, there are lots of things going on here, many of which doesn't relate necessarily as scatological, but they do indicate something of the significance of the Egyptian people to the plan and program of God. Not only did Egypt save Abraham from famine and Isaac, and they saved Jacob from famine, in which they grew from less than a hundred to a couple of million, Egypt also was a safe haven for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Did God really have to send the baby Jesus to Egypt in order to keep him safe? I mean, think about that. Take the boy, go to Egypt, stay there until it's safe for him to return. Did God have no other options? Can we say that God did not, could not, was not able to save Jesus in any other way than to get Joseph and Mary to go running to Egypt to hide so that Herod wouldn't kill him? I think not. And certainly in the book of Acts, we see an event where God calls uh, Herod's 
descendants to to die suddenly, and worms uh, ate up his uh, his intestines. I'm saying that God had lots of options. He could have done. There were myriads of possibilities that God could have uh, used to keep Jesus safe as a baby from Herod, but He chose rather to send the baby Jesus to Egypt in order to keep him safe. Once again, we see that Egypt was a safe haven for God's program to ensure that what God had said would occur did occur. The point that I want to make here is that Egypt has played a significant role throughout the history of the world and will continue to do so, particularly in connection with the final seven years where Antichrist will use it as a base of operation. The Egyptian people, fascinating as they are, will continue to exist and will continue to be in their place because it is eschatologically necessary. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Of course, I'm reading Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Here, we see Egypt mentioned uh, for the last time uh, in the Bible, and they have, or they are symbolically, the text says, a representative of of a reality. The word symbolically uh, is an important one. It says symbolically Sodom and Egypt um, are descriptors of Jerusalem. An alternate translation for these verses says their dead bodies or corpses will lie in the main street of that important city where people crucified their Lord. People have given them, people have given that city the symbolic name of Sodom or Egypt. This is according to Robert Bratcher and Howard uh, Hayden. Symbolically, is from the Greek word pneumatikos, pneumatikos. It could be translated spiritually or even prophetically. Um, Finally, this great city, like Sodom in its rebellion, and like Egypt in the enslavement and bloodshed that typified its hatred of the people of God, is the place where also the Lord was crucified. Now, of course, I'm convinced that the great city here refers to Jerusalem, where their Lord was crucified, the Lord Jesus, the only Lord to be crucified, and in connection with a city. What exactly Egypt uh, and Sodom symbolize or are prophetically depicting, of course, there's been quite a bit of debate uh, among the scholars Um, Grant Osborne says that Sodom is a a symbol of rebellion and Egypt is a symbol of enslavement and bloodshed uh, of the people of God and that these two uh, descriptors 
are perfect for uh, Jerusalem, which joined the ranks uh, of uh, a Sodom in its rebellion and its perversion, and Egypt in that it seeks to enslave um, and causes the bloodshed uh, of the people of God. This is very interesting given the fact that God is going to give Egypt such a prominent role uh, in the eschatological future. The term pneumaticos um, here means not simply allegorical or metaphorical, but prophetically, for it refers to the charismatic exegesis of the Old Testament under the guidance of the Spirit of God. This is what David Ahn writes um, in an article, Charismatic Exegesis, uh, in his commentary on the book of Revelation. In other words, the symbolical names of Sodom and Egypt, to a degree, prophetically indicate the future reality of the city of God, Jerusalem, in its uh, defiance and in its rebellion against the plans and programs of God. Of course, modern Egypt, most of the Egyptian population today, about 90%, would identify themselves as Muslims. Most of the Sunni uh, denomination and of the remaining population, about 9% of Egyptians identify themselves as Coptic Orthodox Christians, and the remaining 1% identify with some other denomination of Christianity. The government of Egypt officially recognizes Sunni Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, which of course are the three recognized Abrahamic faiths. The official government of Egypt allows only the adherence to these three uh, recognized Abrahamic faiths and People can publicly practice their religion, these three, and they can also build houses of worship in Egypt. I think it's quite fascinating that the Coptic church, of course, is actually older than Islam in Egypt. It goes all the way back to the times of Egypt, uh, to the times of Jesus, excuse me, because, but Islam is, you know, 700 years after Christ that Islam was started and initiated. But God is clear in his word that the Egyptian people will experience a national conversion, but they will only do it when God is ready. In fact, the eschatological conversion of Egypt will occur in connection with Daniel's final week. It tells me that there is no possibility that the Egyptian people will cease to exist. Now, just as Assyria lost its national geographic footprint and has done so for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they will be restored to it. Now, you never know. Human history is quite interesting. But I can tell you this. Egypt will not disappear 
from the face of the earth. They may temporarily lose the right to be called Egypt in a land, which probably is not going to happen either, given that there are about 90 million Egyptians. But I can tell you that they are going to be right where they are supposed to be in order to fulfill prophecy specifically related to their role and their connection with the Antichrist as he moves on the world scene in that final generation. Ladies and gentlemen, I am firm in my conviction, I am firm in my faith that Scripture is to be fulfilled literally. A literal fulfillment of Scripture will not allow the Egyptian people to cease to exist. It will not allow them to lose their historical footprint. Now, it can disappear for a while, just as Assyria, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, but at some point, they're going to be restored. It also tells me that God has indicated that the eschatological conversion of Egypt will occur at a time when Egypt is still in darkness as to its faith, that it worships demons, that they're engaged in conduct that is completely outlawed by God that he sees as an abomination. I don't think there's going to be a national uh, salvation event for the Egyptian people until God does it directly and that, of course, is in direct connection with the end times. My friends, the Egyptian people will fulfill their destiny because God will assure it. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 